0: On this episode, Redwoods, Snake Fear, Breakdancing, and How to Be a Better Steward. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure podcast. We're now about three months into all this, uh, four months maybe even, into all this kind of COVID madness, so we thought we'd just kind of touch base with everyone and let everyone know what we've been up to, where we've been. If We've had a few adventures, we've done a few things. Um, to start off, it only took me like about eight years, but I finally got my my photo website up. So that's kind of exciting. So if you want to check it out, check it out. That's at uh, fitz And of course that'll be in the show notes and everything. And I finally kind of left my, my cave, my, my lone, my lonely cave and went out and did a road trip. I actually visited our guest who was, uh, in this episode who we, we interview later, Griff. And we saw, I saw Teresa Baker, who was, uh, we interviewed on a previous episode. So, so yeah, I've, been kind of getting out in a little bit what about you guys what have you been up to
1: oh i want to give you a little you know plug for that because uh first of all your photography the photos you have on there are awesome Thank you. i have one of them the one from the hoover wilderness hanging on the wall you know 10 feet away from me and it's just i love it you know so uh it's definitely worth checking out
0: yeah thanks guys jason how
2: long have you been taking photos like how, like and when did it kind of go from a hobby to something you took more seriously
0: I mean, I, the funny, I started photography in like eighth grade, you know, and taking classes um, in, in school, you know, in, with the darkroom when you were still developing all your own stuff and, you know, it was black and white, obviously, and doing all of that. Um, I took, I, I did two years of junior college before I went to, to film school and uh, they had a really, it was at Orange Coast College, which was actually for junior college, it was one of the best photography programs in the country. So I took several more photo classes while I was there, but then I kind of moved, everything went to like film when I hit film school you know kind of because you kind of had to because it was a lot of work (laughs) and all that and then um you know there was kind of a gap there where I didn't really do still photography almost at all and I but during that time is when I actually started backpacking like right out of college um you know and probably two or three years later you know I I felt pretty bad because I was bringing like disposable you know Kodak (laughs) and like disposable cameras you know and you are know, just not even getting, you're like, I could do so much better if I had better cameras. But I was also broke because it was my first couple of years in the entertainment industry, which, you know, generally you're broke. Um, but then finally, you know, all digital cameras started coming and all that really, the nice like sort of film camera stuff started becoming affordable on eBay. So I bought a, um, the camera I'd always dreamed of, which was this Nikon FM2N. It's like an all manual, like, it's sort of like the tank of cameras, like for a long time, like almost every picture on the summit of Everest had been taking with this camera because it's all manual. It doesn't need batteries and it's, I still have it. I love it. It's great. I haven't used it in a decade, but it's a great camera. So that kind of got me more and more interested. And then like obviously being backpacking and just being in all these beautiful places and trying to, you know, capture them. And then, you know, as I got more and more, you know, proficient at it. And then obviously I finally made the switch to digital and that kind of changed things a lot. I got much more and more interested and more competent, you know. It, it, that technology side of it and it kind of coincided with my learning to edit and all that you know editing in my career you know I got pretty good at learning how to use these programs and stuff so that kind of progressed and yeah so it's kind of exciting I'm excited to finally do it it's been years I've probably been saying I'm going to do this I don't Jeff as long as you've known me I've probably been telling you I'm going to do this oh yeah I'll do <laughs> that's it that's right next yeah. month I want to get my uh, photo site up so it's,
1: <laughs> yeah I th- it's, think it <laughs> is but you know what you're what you're describing is I think something that we can all relate to because any of us who've you know been someplace special in the outdoors you know you want to be able to kind of capture that essence and, and share it with the people who haven't been there, you know, like, wow, this is an amazing, beautiful place. And it's so, you know, you can kind of do that a little bit, you know, but it takes a real talent to do that well. And I think you, you've you done that in your photos. Well, so thanks, hats that. off. Yeah. yeah,
2: I feel like yeah. I've been taking pictures of my phone recently and all I keep thinking is like, I just want
0: to have my hands back on a real SLR again. <laughs> yeah, phone cameras have come a long way, but there is something, it's a different, it's a different animal, you know what I mean? Even though you can do some settings and fine-tune things, it's definitely a very different, um, a different, a different process. And I still shoot with our phone. Like I probably, I did. Jeff knows when we did the Wonderland Trail, I probably did five shots with my iPhone for every one that I actually set up and took the time to do, you know, with the good camera. And they're great for that. That little. If you're not gonna, if I'm not gonna spend, I know if I'm not gonna spend an hour on it and post, product, you know, post and making it perfect and making it something that I want to print, I just use the iPhone too. But you know. But, but yeah, I, it's, it's a great hobby to do with the outdoors. It's a great hobby that sort of pushes you to get out into these, you know, to get outside and, and go visit beautiful places. And that's kind of my favorite thing about it, I think.
2: Awesome. Where did you and uh, Griff go on your on your trip?
0: I just visited him. I mean, obviously, he's, he's in a place I love. I mean, yeah, he's up, you know, he works at, um, you know, the Humboldt, uh, Humboldt State Park, uh, Redwood State Park. And, and that, that's just such a beautiful place up there. I've always just loved that area of, of California, you know, the very northernmost part. So I, I visited. I just visited him up there, um, kind of hung out in the redwoods for a few days, you know. Just he was working, I'd go out and do a hike. I went up and I hiked in Fern Canyon, which is one of my favorite sort of easy short hikes, you know, uh, way up there, and Prairie Creek Redwood State Park. Um, yeah, I did that, and then I then I also snuck in a, a, my my first backpacking trip of the year since all of this kind of craziness happened, and. I'd always wanted to go to this place and I, I backpacked up in the uh, Trinity Alps, um, which are really beautiful. Um, but that was kind of crazy cause it was 4th of July weekend. And you know, I, again, I'd never backpacked there before. I knew it was reasonably well known, but I, and I figured there would be people up there, but I had absolutely no concept of how crazy it would be up there. Um, and, uh, I got up there. I, I think the, the nice, the nice people at the campsite next to me, and we were, ta- uh, we were talking when we got up there, because we had actually run into each other at the trailhead too, and kind of passed each other once or twice. And we, at the lake we were at, which was a, a lake called Summit Lake on the Four Lakes Loop up there, no fewer than, no fewer certainly than 25 tents, probably more than 30 tents on around this small lake. There was like no flat space that wasn't didn't have a tent. You, t- like 10 feet maybe between you and anyone in any direction you know i mean it was it was it was quite insane um, you know very pretty spot but then you know so what 50, 70, 50 plus people there and then the next morning by noon i was the only one there <laughs> yeah. sunday sunday the 5th at noon i had i am not kidding the entire lake to myself for about an hour and a half before somebody else showed up so well, that's um, awesome yeah that wasn't crazy and then i had i think the most afraid i like scared I've ever been a uh, backpacking thing happened. So I spent two nights there. Um, Monday morning I got up early cause I, I knew I was going to have to do some work that day. So I, my alarm went off at 5:30, and you know, it was, the sun was still kind of coming up and it was still kind of dark. And I was hiking up from that lake and I had almost made it to the, the main four loop trail junction when all of a sudden I looked out of the core of my eye and this, this, tan you know medium-sized animal was running right at me at like full speed (laughs) now obviously i'm alive and i'm not maimed so what it was was a labrador (laughs) but if you see a labrador running at you when it's not fully light yet when you haven't even seen a person that day at like 6 you know 30 in the morning Obviously the first thing that pops into your head is not Labrador running at you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was, that was, it was so crazy. And um, you know, thankfully reasonably quick, I realized it was a Labrador, but there was definitely that like, like, you know, heart attack almost like moment of seeing this mountain lion looking like, like running at you at six thirty in the morning. And I, I, you know, his owner was was like, cause she was coming kind of from behind and, up and above me. So I didn't see her until after even a moment with a dog, like even like the, for the first moment, there's this Labrador jumping up and down and like licking me and like, you know, super happy to see me. And I couldn't even see his owner. I'm like, is this dog wild? And she wasn't far. You know, I think it's just, it was, it, I think I had seen the dog before at another lake the day before, but it was, uh, yeah, that was definitely a, uh, it definitely woke me up, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it got, it got the heart going.
1: That's funny. <laughs>
2: Yeah, um, you know, it's a, a week ago, we had a whole, um, for Adventure Zone, we did a whole week of workshops, um, and, you know, a lot of it was like, one of them was, you know, out, getting outside together, like, just sort of, like, navigating what it's like to be getting outside these days, and what safe and personal risk assessment and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, and it's interesting, because oh. even with getting outdoors, even though it is I think one of the more safe places. There's definitely a lot of consideration um, to keep in mind. You know, holiday weekends—that's a good one. Um, and just how even by being able to go maybe on a stay a little longer, you're able to see less people. I know um, my husband and I—we were—we're basically we have a van, so we can be pretty self-contained. Um, and we had some family stuff that we wanted to be you know, home for, which my home is was in Washington State, so. It was interesting because like all there was so much extra thought that went into planning. Like we got COVID tested before we left, and you know, just navigating, just sort of the journey and making sure that we're staying safe, not wanting to get my parents sick. Like there's just all these other considerations, but ultimately, and especially because we have a van, so we can be a little bit more self-contained. You know, we kind of struggled the whole time with it. We talked a lot about like. How does this like? How does it feel? And like, in a lot of ways, it feels fine. And we felt like we could navigate safely, even though some of the campgrounds were kind of crowded. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing, so again, you're not like in close contact with people you don't know. And it was really easy to kind of navigate bathrooms. Like, easier for me um, than Paul, like with the men's restroom situation. But like, it was easy to navigate with, you know, the hand sanitizer, the masks, and all that kind of stuff. But there's still sort of this feeling of, like, should we go? Or should not we, we not have gone? You know, it's, it's an interesting time to still be deciding and making the decisions whether to get out. But at the, at the same time, for, like, the mental health piece of it, it was so nice to be outside, be breathing in fresh air, be on trail, be sitting by a lake, you know, all those things.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Joan and I, we've done some car camping um, over the last month. so And that's been really nice because generally, you know, the camps are – spread out enough that that's you're not really even you know encroaching on each other's space at all and um you, you know you are basically self-contained you, it does require some more planning though because like you're basically dry camping they don't have water available and things like that because you know for safety concerns so you know you have to be prepared for all of that and uh, have strategies and we've been doing pretty much close to home we've, we're hunkered down right now up in Bend, Oregon. And um, it's been working out really well because you know there's just less people up here, so um, that's that's worked out really nicely for us. Uh, we did do a Fourth of July hike with the dogs, their longest yet. So one of the things you know we haven't done any any backpacking trips or big trips this summer yet, but uh, I've been kind of gearing up our two Labradoodles to you know, do some longer hikes, and we did an almost a ten mile hike with them. Um, on the uh, 4th of July, and that was their longest yet. It was, and, and amazingly, we had hardly anybody on the trail. What we did is we got to the trailhead early enough, it wasn't even that early, it was about 8.45 a.m., but we, um, most of the crowd to this particular trail showed up later, because when we got back, everything was packed, and we did a loop. So we went, you know, past the area that's popular, the waterfall and kept on going uphill, 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 and then kind of looped around where there's on a trail that gets very little traffic. And that worked out super well. Um, you know, we didn't have any problems with, you know, bumping into people or that sort of thing. And then, of course, we had our buffs on so we could pull them up over our face when we needed to.
0: We, we should tell everyone where you are now, Severia. <laughs>
2: still, we're still literally in the car. So um, we are, we're headed home. So I'm a little nervous about. Yeah, and honestly, I'm a little nervous about, one, heading back to Los Angeles because of the heat, um, because it's been like triple digits from what I hear. And two, you know, I'm a little nervous about heading back to someplace where, they're so, where the COVID numbers are so high. Um, but, you know, when we're home, we can, we can stay pretty hungered down um, and have low contact or no contact aside from getting through. So I'm sure it'll be fine, but there's something appealing about staying out in the woods for sure. Um, so yeah, we're, so we're, cur- we're literally at this moment, we're driving through Reno. We actually spent um, a couple nights up uh, nearer and in Lassen National Park. Um, you know, and that was like, it was interesting. That was another um, great experience. We have our dog with us. The national parks are, you know, very um, limited in what you can do with dogs. So it was actually funny. We did Lassen Peak yesterday morning, um, and we made sure, because we had the dog. We did um, a super early morning, um, like early sunrise hike up Lassen Peak, which is not a long hike. It's only like two and a half miles. It's about it's a little over 2,000 feet of game. Um, and we left really early because we wanted to make sure we were down in time so that the car didn't get hot for the dog. You know, we had the windows open and she's fine and it's new, cool and we have a fan. Um, but it was funny. We, but because we went so early, we actually didn't pass that many people well, we didn't pass anybody going up, but we only had a few people coming down because there's only a few people who had gotten uh, that much earlier than us. Um, but, you know, we had an interesting experience because when we came back in the parking lot, we obviously had just, just come back from our hike because, like, our backpacks, was, you know, were next to our van and everything, and we had the dog out walking around and a ranger stopped to um, to just chat with us. And, it was funny, like, and he was just chatting, and he was super nice. We had a lovely conversation but I think he was sort of, you know, we said, he's like, Oh, did you, you know, how was the trail? Did you come back to, you know, how was it? And it was like, Oh, it was good. We left early we to come back down. Cause you know, we, we knew we couldn't take our dog. So we wanted to make sure we got back before, you know, got a little warm in the car or whatever. He was like, Oh, okay. And we think that he totally stopped to chat us up because he was like, hmm, cause we were walking our dogs around the parking lot to, so she could go to the bathroom. And we were like, I bet he was going to like try to see if we took the dog up on the trail or not. Um, but it's interesting because we had this experience where, you know, just with the light, it was the light of everything that was going on. And this is just sort of generally throughout our trips. One of the things that I have to say that I, I'm just so much you know, more aware now, I think I've always been aware, but I'm looking at it differently. You know, we stayed at a few campgrounds and both of the campgrounds, well, actually every campground that we stayed at was entirely white. Like there was literally no people of color in the entire campground, and even the interaction with the ranger, which was super friendly and super nice. I just wonder like would it have been different if we weren't people who like looked like we knew what we were doing? White, you know, white individual, you know, white individuals. Um, it's just really interesting to be with, in light of everything that's going on in the world right now, just sort of being aware of the fact that we can go just about any place and never have to think about whether or not we're going to feel comfortable or if we're going to look like everybody else or fit in and stuff like that. And so it's been interesting because that I think has been one of the biggest difference on this trip. And just as I see the outdoors and I look in the outdoors, um, the national parks on the trail, there's definitely a lot more people's color, which is awesome. Um, but in general, in some of like the more, the campgrounds that we were staying at that were a little bit more off the track, you know, for service because we were in the van and stuff. Um, it was interesting that it was just very white experience and um it's something
0: i'm much more aware of now than i think i have ever been yeah no it's it's uh i mean again it was something that i think i had noticed subconsciously before i i met teresa and i did the documentary with teresa all those years ago um but it definitely opens your eyes kind of when you have that realization you know and and it wasn't something that i understood necessarily all the the intricacies of or, or the causes of but but it definitely um it's definitely a major issue that, that we as outdoor people in the outdoor industry, and gosh, in so many other places in society, we're, we're we're gonna, you know, I think we're painfully going through part of it now. But it's, there's a lot to be done, and yeah, it would be nice to see, you know, more people of color in camping or feeling comfortable doing that, you know, doing that kind of thing for sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 a tough it's a tough one. <laughs>
2: And I would just, you know, I would invite listeners who are listening in, we would love to hear about your experience, I mean, this whole podcast is about, like, almost, you know, being almost somewhere, being almost there, just being outdoors and being sort of an everyday adventure, so that I would just encourage our listeners, like, if you have a story that you want to tell, if you want to share, if you want to, you know, if you know somebody that you think we should be interviewing, write in, um, I could play show notes where we can put, um, you know, a link to make recommendations but we would love to as we keep going on this journey interviewing people just making sure that we are representing everyone
0: out there well speaking of diversity and inclusion um this week's interview subject he is also a, a white person but he um has been a big advocate for diversity and inclusion i actually met him during the making of the documentary i did with Teresa on diversity and inclusion years ago again link in our show notes um He's a naturalist. He's a, a great dancer, by the way. We'll have that link to a video of him dancing in the thing as well. An all-around amazing human being and, and, a, and a lot of fun. So uh, why don't we just kick off the interview? All right, well, Severia, Jeff and I are, are a little jealous of our guest, Griff, today because we're all locked away in our quarantine quarters down here in super-hot Los Angeles. And uh, our friend, Griff, is in a redwood forest right now. Zoom calling us, and we can see all the beautiful trees and and ferns and everything behind him. Uh, welcome to the show, Griff. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Really exciting. Why don't you tell everyone uh, where you are and like you know what you do where you are?
3: So I am deep in the largest old growth redwood forest on the entire planet Earth, and that is in Humboldt Redwood State Parks, and I believe it's 10,000 acres of old growth forest and tree, the most trees over 350 feet tall anywhere. It has never been logged, it's never been uh, managed heavily by humans um, other than the Stinkyon people who uh, stopped managing it about 200 years ago. And I am the nature guide, the park. Interpreter the cultural natural resource interpreter. So I'm calling myself a nature guide. So so in this beautiful place in this sacred one-of-a-kind Area, there's only 4.6 percent of the old growth redwood forest left And so with and I'm in the biggest biggest piece So within that I am the nature guide I'm the natural and cultural resource interpreter So I'm the person who talks about the park talks about the nature talks about the history helps visitors learn about what they're seeing that's that's my job I'm the naturalist
0: that's so cool um, there's so many things to talk to you about um, you're kind of a renaissance man where all of this this stuff is concerned um, but why don't we since you're in the parks why don't we start out without and, and and why don't we talk or why don't you talk a little bit about the importance of parks and your sort of philosophy of the park because I know it's a very deep and, and interesting uh, take on, on our parklands.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting Is sometimes uh, when I'm out here and I just look around, I'm like, this place is protected. And we almost lost all of these old growth redwood forests. Were it not for people like Laura Mahan and, say, the Redwood League and and State Parks and Rockefeller, who put in two million dollars. It always says one million dollars. He ended up putting in two million dollars. But if it wasn't for those people, we wouldn't even have the 4.6% that's left. So sometimes when I think about parks, I think about it from the whole span of modern history is like going back to the Industrial Revolution. And we live in a society now that has placed value on uh, natural areas and protects them. And that's pretty exciting. Um, it's weird that it has to happen that way, that, that maybe our culture or our spiritualities didn't just kick, it, kick in and we didn't, uh, you know, just save them on our own. But we now, have, we live in a society where we protect these places for biodiversity and for people to recreate and for educational and spiritual experiences. And I think that's really special. And I think it's also just a starting point to where we should be headed. Where, where is that? Where do you think we should be headed? Looking back over our full like, history, when we, when we developed areas and we've f- we felt like we were conquering nature so we were we were conquering nature so if you could build a road right through this swamp, that wasn't a bad thing that was interfering with you know uh, salmon and clam and oyster life cycles and waterfowl life, life cycles that was a success because we overcame nature and we had that cultural conditioning for so long because we've had this like long long history of seeing our our uh, family mysteriously dying of invisible things like covid viruses coronaviruses and also being hunted by big animals like short-faced bears and saber-toothed tigers lord knows what else and so we for a long time for thousands of years had this this conquer nature conditioning embedded in us even if it wasn't like totally you know like uh obvious it still was just conquering nature thing inside of us and I think we're slowly coming out of that now because we look at what we've done we've conquered we won fights over okay so now we're we're going oh maybe that wasn't such a great idea anyways so we've protected a few places and parks and I think now we're starting to re-examine ourselves and our place in nature and maybe what nature was in the first place and maybe what drove you know drove our fear and how can we don't have to have that anymore and so where I think we're going to go from here is I'm an optimist is that people are going to want more places that are set aside for recreation, spiritual development, biodiversity. And I feel like this is going to pick up a lot in the near future.
0: That's great. You know, you mentioned, um, Laura Mayhan, um, and, and the, and you know, the fact that now these places are protected, that's a very like interesting history. And I know in the past, I've heard you, you t- talk about Laura Mahan, but do you want to talk a little bit more about her and, and the, you know, just how we ended up saving the redwoods and that whole story?
3: Well, Laura Mahan was born to pioneer parents. They came out here in the 1850s. She was born in 1865, I believe. And she was unusual for women in that she grew up uh, playing in the Redwoods and working on her farm and then went to uh, Mills College in Oakland and then was like one of the first women accepted to this architecture. Uh, and I can't remember the name of a institute in San Francisco. And she came back and she was painting the Redwoods and as she was painting them, they're like falling around her. And so she became one of the very first forest activists. And she started the Women Save the Redwood League, which was a different group that kind of paralleled Save the Redwood League. And she was the most active activist of all when it came to saving the Redwoods in um, California. And she... uh, She actually did what I what I believe is the first direct action, the first civil disobedience by a non-Indigenous person where she got in front of the trees and and in between the trees and loggers. And she's like, you're not going to log this. And this is we're trying to buy this. And you have to wait until we can come up with the money. And her husband went and they got the authorities and they stopped. And, you know, for a woman to do that, like this was 1924. This is right after women federally had the right to vote she was organizing and being a leader long before women had the right to vote and um, during it and after it, she was a forest activist. And a lot of people don't know those women's groups were the first conservation groups, the the women's rights movement to get the right to vote. Um, They still weren't allowed just to participate in every single uh, political issue. They were kept to a very few and where they had been traditionally was gardening clubs. And so a lot of these women knew a lot about botany and forestry. And as a result, After they got the right to vote, even while they're getting the right to vote, they also weighed in on forestry issues all over the nation and especially here. And they galvanized around the Save the Redwoods movement. So the Women's Federation, uh, the California Federation of Women's Clubs actually made Saving the Redwoods their priority and um, mostly because of the advocacy of Laura Mahan. So she's my hero. I don't have any tattoos, but if I was gonna tattoo anything on my arm, it would be a picture (laughs) of Laura Mahan in her long black dress and her big black hat and her big black sun umbrella, and that's what will be on my arm. And I'm seriously contemplating doing that because the more I read about her, the more awesome she becomes. Uh, She was just all over the place. She was an advocate on top of being an advocate on top of being an advocate. She was amazing, tireless.
4: Griff, you'll have to send us your favorite picture of her for the show notes.
3: Okay, I will.
1: I definitely will.
4: <laughs> I, w- I want to see. I want to see the whole thing.
1: Yeah, we want to see what the tattoo will look like. Yeah. You know, when it comes to to happen, I'll send you the picture that will be the tattoo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so so now that we're talking. So we've preserved these lands. As someone who's now somewhat tasked with and, and, and like at least in educating people, you know, we have our podcast, our listeners as well as us, we're we're adventurers, right? We love going into the places that have been preserved and rescued. What can we do to be sort of better stewards? Like what can we do to help preserve these ecosystems um, and keep them pristine or as pristine as possible for like future generations and for ourselves even in this generation?
3: Well, I think that there's so many different levels or dimensions to answer that question on. So there's definitely action items what I wanna get to. Um, sometimes when you sit out in the in the redwoods for too long you get super philosophical and so if i do that just bring me back to the action items
0: i'll never bring you back i will never bring you back Just, just i'm in amongst going.
3: these like two thousand year old trees and there's nursery logs and redwood sorrel and sword ferns and so like I, and the lighting is coming in really really cool and i'm sitting right next to the south fork the ill river and so it's illuminating all the maple leaves which are a lighter green than the redwoods and so it's just it's amazing where, where I'm talking to you from is a lot like heaven. But what I would tell adventurers is to first, like, if they see their adventure quests, their weekend adventure quests as terminal experiences, uh, if they could reassess that way of thinking and, and, and not see these as terminal. I don't want any visitors to see coming to a park as a terminal experience because we – we're we're, we don't have the privilege of that we don't have the luxury of that anymore we are losing songbird species at a phenomenal rate we're losing insects which are the the plankton of the land if you will they support the the food web and we're losing all these things really fast and we don't have time for people to be just vacationers that come out into the redwoods and go what a beautiful tree let's get a picture in front of it and then go home and drop it Um, We need people to come out here and enjoy themselves and have fun first and foremost but not see it as a terminal experience. See it as something that you love and you want a relationship with that you'll come back to again and again and again and recreate spots. uh, Recreate, you know, whatever visuals or or whatever about the park made you feel awestruck. Try to recreate that through the form of restoration ecology where you live, plant native plants. you know if it's if it's not a fire hazard have a pile of sticks that birds can go into and toads can go into and salamanders can go into have a have a bird box have a bat house uh, and but definitely plant native plants and start to recreate like parks in your own home and and when you come to parks and have a good time also just like bring some binoculars or magnifying glass or a snorkel and mask if you can afford those things or try to rent them and really, really get into it and get to know who lives here and watch them and ask questions and be insatiably curious because all of these things need guardians and speakers. They need they need you to see them more as a va- vacation destination. And I think for adventurers, it's particular so because this might be totally weird and you guys might get a bunch of like really bizarre comments about why did you ever interview Griffey's obviously insane. But I, I often think of adventurers as people who um, experience present moment more than most. Um, because when you're on an adventure, when you're riding your bike down a hill, when you're rock climbing, when you're someplace pretty, um, like, not just pretty, but like awe-inspiring, it puts you in the present moment. So you're, you're no longer doing the past and you're no longer doing the future. You're not When you're riding your bike down a hill or you're skiing down a hill, you're not going like, oh, my gosh, I hope that I uh, – Return to those phone calls that I, that I was supposed to last week like you know and you're and you're so not strange. going and, and you're not going on your bike and you're not going like if i just would have like changed my major in my junior year everything would be fine now like you're not doing that you are present moment adventurers are often present moment. it's kind of like the physical buddhist monks you know it's like meditation with uh locomotion mm. and so i feel like adventurers are positioned to really understand uh, the connections with nature and um, some of the actions they can take um, vary. So one is you can take lots of uh, pictures and speak and teach and start clubs. I would love to see more um, adventurers taking kids fishing, um, even hunting, um, because those still, you know, create a relationship with nature. Um, Biking, but like really like becoming not just a solo adventurer, but trying to include people. Also, being aware of some of the ecological things. Like, if you be aware of where you're at, if you're in an area that has been inundated by an invasive fungus uh, called, a uh, water mold called, ooh, U. Mycetes, it's a uh, sudden oak death. If I top throw a morums, and if it sounds familiar, it's because it's the same water mold that caused the Irish potato famine. And when you ride your bike or you go jogging through an area that's infested, infested with Uumaicetes, uh, sudden oak death and it gets on the mud gets on your tires that's where the mycides is and then you put your bike on your you know on your rack and you drive five miles and you take your bike off and you have that mud on your tire still you have spread this invasive disease that is going to kill oak trees which are a keystone species. Keystone in that more bugs lay their eggs on oak trees and bugs are like I said plankton of the land so they're giving birds like the best food to feed their babies caterpillars go nice and soft and very high nutritional value and um in tons of things depend on eating those acorns from scrub jays to you know bears and deers you know it's, it's really important food so adventurers could do directly help ecology If they don't want to take a bunch of kids fishing they can at least wash the mud off their their stuff and um and staying on trails a, a lot of times like the funnest adventure is the one that's off the trail but you know know your habitat know where you're at you might be off the trail in a place where the last one percent of this particular flower lives like you know 99 percent has already been paved over or or ag land over or or off-road vehicles over and now there's one percent and you wanted to take your off-road you know bike and just go destroy that because you were ignorant you didn't know so knowing where you're going knowing the place you're going to have your adventures could be really handy too because then you might know how to treat the land.
1: Yeah. What are some ways that we can get to know the place that we're going, you know, and, and get a little more intimate with it beforehand?
3: That's, that's a wonderful question. And, 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 you know, people are probably like the first things popping up is like, do your research online. But what I think is even better, I think you should make it do that, but do make it more personal. There's an iNaturalist app. So there's an app that you can download on your phone, which I use all the time. And it's kind of like a Facebook social media platform for nature nerds and people who are who are, are, are fond of nature. And so adventurers are often in these hard to reach places where there's not a lot of biologists. And if you have this app on your phone, you don't need to have cell phone connection to um, take pictures and put it on it. Can, they can be uploaded later but you can go out and you can take a picture of a plant that you're unfamiliar with. And then once you get into reception, you could, there's a, a option that says, what is this? And you can click on what is this and it does like a face recognition type software. And it could tell you what kind of plant or insect or even poop. I've uploaded poop on there and it's told me like, that's Bobcat poop. So I naturalist app turns adventurers into citizen scientists and what an important time it is to have uh citizen scientists in high elevation areas or in desert areas because that's why we're not getting and those are areas that are the most affected by climate change and so it gives us an idea of range expansion of some of our species you know like if you think about pica you know pica are moving higher and higher and higher elevations. so like having tracking that even like you, you know noticing the absence of pica after years and years you know by naturalist pictures tells us a lot about what's happening to them So I think that just using iNaturalist would be a really good way for adventurers to get to know the area. Um, And then doing your research, you know, there's some really, there's so many good books and field guides now that uh, you could take with you that aren't incredibly heavy. And there's some that are online that you could download on your phone.
4: Griff, you had earlier mentioned sort of the idea of not having it be a terminal experience, right? So go take your picture, leave, be like been there, done that. And you'd mentioned ways to recreate that at home whether it's planting native gardens or you could build a bat box like what are some ways that people could if they wanted to recreate that you know that nature experience at home what are what are resources and ways that people could do that and what's appropriate you know because you don't want to recreate the place you visited at home necessarily because it's not native to your home
3: here's the here's the magic of native plants native to your area plants. so if it's native to the United States it doesn't mean it's native to your area National Wildlife Federation has this um, online tool called the native plant finder where you can put in your zip code and it tells you what's native to your zip code which is pretty amazing and very very helpful but here's the I'm gonna, I'm gonna think for way to say this as succinctly as possible here's the magic of native plants that most people do not know so When you're in elementary school, they tell you some plants eat bugs and some plants, wait, some bugs eat plants and some bugs eat other bugs. But here's the real story. 5% of bugs eat a lot of different types of plants. 95% of the bugs specialize on one, two, or 10 species of plants. Um, Think monarchs and milkweed. So monarchs lay their eggs on milkweed and their caterpillars eat milkweed and they sequester the poison That's in milkweed to help them live their life without being hunted by a bunch of predators because they taste like crap Well, that is one of a million stories just like that Lots most of the butterflies have that same relationship with one plant or one genus or one family of plants That's really common beetles lots of things That's why there's beetles called the willow leaf beetle and the alder leaf beetles because that's where you'll find them because plants are most plants are poisonous to most things and so to overcome the poison in a plant it's taken you know thousands of years if not millions of years of evolution and these bugs have created this enzyme that helps them process these poisons so they can go ahead and eat the milkweed okay So when you plant all your, when you go to, you know, your big box retailer and you buy those plants and they say pest free, what they mean is butterfly free. These plants are from Asia and Europe and Africa. They did not evolve here. So the native insects are not gonna eat eat them. So you plant them in your yard and then you're like, well, I wanna attract butterflies. So then you go buy a bunch of non-native flowers that were treated with um, neotonicotinoids and the nectar's poison and you kill all the bees and butterflies that visit those flowers for the first two or three years because you're poisoning them. The whole thing is just terrible so what you should do is buy plants that are native to your area and and you can start just like every time a plant in your yard dies replace it with a plant that's native to your area and then the butterflies lay their eggs on that plant and then the caterpillars do eat leaves and and most people are like oh our our leaves are being eaten we need to get some spray you know no that's butterflies babies eating that and and and, you know and when people say there's a lot of bite marks go yeah and 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 use your iNaturalist app to take a picture of the caterpillar and say look at the butterfly this is going to become it's beautiful and if you had a bunch of those butterflies in your yard no one's going to get mad at you for it like if you had a tender date and they came over your house and they were like oh uh nice to meet you but you know as I was walking through your yard there were so many butterflies I just don't think this is going to work out between us like like no one's ever going to say that right no one's mad at too many butterflies and no one comes to Humboldt Redwood State Parks and and, and comes to me and like You know, I was so glad to see the redwoods, but then when I was looking around, I noticed a lot of bite marks on the redwood sorrel and the sword fern, and I'm wondering why you guys don't spread. We're not gonna come back here until you spread. No one's ever said that, okay? No one's ever said, oh, I'd show you the pictures of Yosemite that we took, but there was too many bug bite marks on the plants. No one ever says that! So, (laughs) so, plant native plants, learn to tell the story behind the bite marks, okay? Find out what's biting them. Tell the story. And that's how you can get closer to nature. On your balcony, you can have a few pots of native plants. And that's one way to recreate it. And also just having a water feature is really good. Um, Do not feed wildlife, though. Do not feed raccoons. Do not feed opossums. I love those compassionate people who are like, the opossums are outside and they look so hungry. And then they get a bunch of cat food and they put it out there. And the um what happens is that they attract all the opossums and raccoons, and then they get habituated habituated means "I'm not scared of you anymore," and then they go to your neighbor's house and your neighbor shoots them um, also a lot of times when you feed wildlife, you inflate the population artificially, and so once you move, then a bunch of them have to starve to death until so they, so they can get right you know get back to a normal population level. Feeding wildlife just never ever works out you know. If you, want to, if you want to attract wildlife to your yard, plant things they evolved with, that they recognize as natural foods and know that it didn't come from you. They know that the mail mix came from you in the little pink bowl next to your door. So stop it.
0: So I think it's time in the interview for us to bring up a little thing called boss dances like a boss. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> so uh, do you want to tell the story of, bo- of how that magnificent video came to be?
3: Uh, before I was State Park Interpreter, like five months ago, I worked for the California Conservation Corps for 18 years where I took youth, uh, mostly urban youth or suburban youth, and I would take them into the wilderness with me. They joined the California Conservation Corps. They'd move up here. They'd live in a residential campus like, you know, college dorms. They would um, earn scholarships. It's a really good program. And we would go out for eight days at a time camping. And a lot of times, this was their, most of them, that was their first time camping. And so your first time camping is for eight days and you're backpacking into, you know, Klamath, Wilder, you know, up to the Klamath or the Yallabali Wilderness. And you have a mule team taking some of the, you know, heavier stuff up. And you spend eight days out there and working on a trail and then you have six days off. And so a lot of times those kids, young adults would come and they'd look at me and here I'm this big white guy with a bunch of facial hair and they wouldn't feel they'd be like how is this guy relevant to me and do I feel safe with him out in the middle of the woods and so I wanted them to feel safe because I wanted to tell them all about butterflies and birds and snakes and everything else and so I needed to like hurry up and let's like connect here and one of the ways of doing that was by not taking myself too seriously in dancing so we were at a remote because I used to be a b-boy, I used to be a break dancer back in the eighties. And you wouldn't know that by looking at me, you would never know that I lived in the city, but I grew up in the Bay area and I was white boy fresh. And I used to do break dance competitions and all that stuff. So I can still dance. And so I would turn on music and we would dance. And so one day I had a bunch of core members that were cleaning the, the, we were in this remote facility and they were cleaning the kitchen and the music was on and I started dancing and it got recorded. And I was going to delete that because, um, they were like, Oh, you need to upload that to your YouTube channel. They had just created a YouTube channel for me so that their friends and relatives could see the work we were doing. And I was like, no one needs to see a fat cowboy dancing. We're not putting that up there. And they're like, we want our moms to see it because you know, everybody's always trying to hook me up with their mom. I'm a single guy, So like all my core members that had single moms were always trying to hook that up, but like, we want our mom to see it. So I, uh, uploaded it and, immediately started getting feedback from people saying that it made him laugh, made him feel happy. They wanted to use it for their opening for their keynote speech on diversity and inclusion or cultural competency. And I was like, cultural competency. I just never even said those two words together. But after I thought about it, you know and after i thought about them i was like this is what i've been doing is i've been trying to be culturally competent so i can reach all these different peoples because i'd have a crew of 20 and they'd be from all walks of life speaking different languages you know some of them were brand new immigrants learning english you know some of them were suburban you know some of them were from you know inner city and so i had to relate to a bunch of different kinds of people and you know dance and music does it and so uh the video went viral and after the video went viral room map from outdoor afro called me to tell me my video was going viral and to help me figure out what I was going to say the next day to the media and i'm thinking the local paper and stuff like that and the next morning good morning america was on the phone headline news was on the phone and today show was on the phone and that was an incredible experience that led to a whole array of like speaking engagements and writing engagements and uh, a 10 episode online show with animal planet um, that's still on, uh, still on Animal AnimalPlanet. but you can watch them commercial-free on Animal Planet on Facebook, and just a lot of magical, really awesome things that made me feel grateful that um, I got over my insecurity about being a fat, white, dancing cowboy.
0: <laughs> and what was the name? Of, I'm assuming you were in a crew. What, what were your, what was your breaking crew? Uh,
3: Westside B-Boys and Westfield B-Boys.
0: Um, I, I first met you, it was right around the time that the BioBlitz dance came out. Do you want to talk about and how that got created?
3: That was another one of the really bizarre manifestations of the viral video. And you know the viral video gave me a platform to talk about what I love. Like I've I've been into conservation since I was a very little kid. And, and, and trying to not just be a conservationist myself. I'm trying to get you to be a conservationist too. And so I will do a lot to make someone feel comfortable <laughs> in nature and to want to connect with... Uh, the plants and animals and so dancing worked in the CCC so Roomap got room App from outdoor afro she's the founder of outdoor Afro. she's also a commissioner commissioner of California State Parks and Rec uh, she's California State Parks and Rec Commissioner so she got with Michelle O'Haron, who's now with say the Redwood League they got um, they were in charge of the biodiversity festival for National Geographic so National Geographic was commemorating National Parks hundred-year anniversary by going every year to a different park for ten years, different national park for ten years and doing a bio blitz event. And a bio blitz event is using the iNaturalist app that I was talking to you guys about. And so you go out for twenty four hours and you take, you know, as many pictures and you upload them to your iNaturalist account. it's like a contest between these parks. And so they were coming to Golden Gate. And so Rue and Michelle and I were like planning the the entertainment for the biodiversity festival that accompanies the Bioblitz event. Are you following me here? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, so Rue asked me what I was going to do, what, what's going to be my contribution. And I was like, I'm just helping you find rappers. Like, you know, we're, we're going to get, you know, Ashe, Asheville Seasons, we're going to get uh, Tom McFadden, we're going to get these, and she's like, no, you got to do something. So I went to the CCC, went to my crew and I said, Rue Mapps, said you guys have to do something? And they're like, well, let's dance. And so I invented the BioBlitz dance, which has one rule, it must be done outdoors. And it's based on three or, or it could be four animal moves, depending on the dancers. And we put it up on YouTube and it went viral. And it, we started getting Bio blitz dances back from Samoa and Africa and Romania and Russia and all over the United States. There was like hundreds of them at one time. And uh, all to the same music and all the same moves. And we ended up getting invited to Washington DC where um, me and some core members ended up dancing on stage with the Secretary of Interior, Sally Jewell and the CEO of National Geographic. <laughs> <laughs> and they knew all the moves to bio blitz dance like they had practiced before they met us and um <laughs> which was the biggest shocker of them all i miss sally joe oh my gosh but anyways <laughs> um so yeah that was the bio blitz dance and it's still happening i still go down to uh wildlife uh wildlife week down in la for p22 days and dance on stage doing the bio blitz dance so still on
0: uh, so one of the coolest things you've done in recent years is your Animal Planet show. Do you want to talk to people about that, where they can find it, and, and what it was all about?
3: Yeah, that was one of the, one of the uh, events that I'm most grateful for, for so many different levels. So a, uh, a wonderful production company called High Noon Entertainment uh, saw some of my videos on YouTube. Not the, And not the dancing videos, either. I do a lot of conservation videos on Facebook, on my Facebook and on my YouTube. And um, they reached out to me and they said, would you like to do a show? And I was like, I, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do a show. And so we talked about it and I had an idea of what I wanted to do. I still want to do, um, but I loved their idea too. And their idea was like, it's called wild jobs. So is after the dirty job model and where we go to we, where we went to mostly sanctuaries, uh, and we and i would work with the people for a day and talk to them and interview them and, and and do the work alongside of them and it was wonderful i met my heroes i loved every single episode these people were like working really hard to help animals and conservation for pennies you know and or for free and it was just a wonderful wonderful experience most of them were volunteers actually so there was like you know, the Ohio raptor center which is a wildlife care center there was um the marine mammal center in la which takes care of seals and sea lions uh there was the phoenix herpetological society where they were rescuing you know snakes and stuff that were like confiscated like cops would go to you know some dude's house that had like 500 rattlesnakes in his garage for some reason and um they would bring those and and they also had like uh alligators that were missing tails and we put on prosthetic tails on these alligators it was a fun 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 experience and I got to meet people who were so passionate about what they believed in they were just a joy to be around and st- and they're still my friends I stayed in touch with them all because um, they were just incredible people.
0: Well, the coolest thing I think I learned from that, that for me, just in my practical life as a hiker and outdoor, is how hard it is to get a rattlesnake to bite you, which just, was kind oh, of yeah. reassuring and refreshing because now everyone is posting pictures because they're all out right now. So I've been, you always see them, you know, the pictures this time of year is the season. But that was, that was kind of neat.
3: Yeah, I stepped on several and I'd never they never, I mean, because that's what we were doing on purpose. People are like, you stepped on several, you must be not a very good hiker. <laughs> but like... Uh, you need to wear your glasses when you go hiking. That was part of the show. This guy had stepped on hundreds using a fake leg, a warm fake leg, and a cold fake leg, and um, the the temperature did not make a difference. They struck like three percent of the time, so it was r- really surprising. They mostly hide, you know. They're cryptic, so they don't want to strike you. They don't want to get into a fight with a big old animal. So. I watched it. We stepped on them, and they pretended like we weren't there. They didn't uh, strike at us until we picked them up. So,
1: so don't pick up a rattlesnake.
3: No, don't. (laughs) I would not recommend that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's. uh, I did one hike down in San Clemente. Um, We ran across five rattlesnakes on one four and a half mile hike. And uh, one of the guys that I was with, you know, says, oh, you saved my life because I, you know, jumped in front of him and said, look out, there's a snake, you know, but they don't really freak me out that much. I mean, I don't like snakes per se, but I mean, I'm not like, you know, cuddly with them or anything like that. But I think that a lot of people are just afraid of snakes and they're very fearful of rattlesnakes. So it's great to learn a little bit more about them and, and understand them. And then maybe some of that fear gets, you know. Allegiant. I have
3: a theory about snake fear. Um, you know, people are always like, oh, well, people are afraid of snakes because of the Bible and talks about Satan. And I think that's part of it. Cultural is part of it. Um, but there was a lot of ancient cultures that, like, love snakes, you know, native, native cultures and European cultures. What I think that the modern human, why we're afraid of snakes is because snakes don't have eyelids. And so they always, like, just make your eyes, like, really, really big and then look in the mirror and then imagine going outside and meeting your neighbors like that. They'd be like, Ooh, dang, this guy is a freak. Don't go over his house. Stay away from him. Don't piss him off. And so when you don't have eyelids, you just look pissed off all the time. And so I think when people see snakes, snakes just look pissed off. And so, um, cause they don't have eyelids. That's, that's my hypothesis anyways.
4: So, so Griffin, I mean, clearly this is a dream job. Um, what would you like as, I mean, one, how did you get this job? I mean, you come into it pretty qualified and having some experience. I talk a little bit about what probably made you uniquely qualified for this job. But for somebody who's listening to this, who's like, wow, that is the dream job. And maybe they're not there yet or they're not on that certain path. Like what can what can people do to sort of start and or pursue a career like yours
1: and eventually replace you?
4: yes Yes.
3: eventually replace me well they can they can help me get another 10 episode show and i would be more likely to leave (laughs) but i don't know i you know i was telling my friend yesterday they said when are you going to retire and i was like i don't know i could stay at this job until i died i mean it's it is a dream job what i would tell people is that what used to be the traditional ranger interpreter, the interpretive ranger kind of position where you like stood by the parking lot and you're like, hi folks, come with me. I think that that position is getting replaced with more of an education specialist kind of position because unfortunately you, you can't talk about ecosystems and animals now without talking about the fact that they're disappearing, you know? So what I would suggest to someone, if they wanted to get into this career as an interpreter is like, Definitely study ecology, and if you can, go to a college where you can take interpretive interpretation courses. There's also, if you just wanted to be like a docent or part-time, or even adventurer. If you're an adventurer and you like don't necessarily want to be an interpreter, but you want to be able to go do like high school presentations once in a while, or talk to your bike group or your whatever hiking group. Um, the National Association for Interpretation has these week-long trainings where you can become a certified interpretive guide. And they'll happen all over the country and several times a month. And that it would be a really good way. If you just wanted to be a docent or a trip leader or something like that, it would be a really, really, really good start right there. If you wanted to do it as a career full-time, then you'd need a bachelor's degree in um, interpretation or ecology or something related. Uh, I've always been an interpreter since I was a little kid because my, my grandmother and my mother were kind of like natural interpreters and they're always, and my mom, Incessantly ask questions, and so sometimes it gets to my nerves because she asks millions of questions. But when I was a kid, it was it was I, I loved it um, because she would be like, "What are you looking at?" You know, pick up that frog. What does it feel like? You know, where do you think that frog lives? And so it just got me thinking about where you know what what is the connections to everything else, and I feel like that's a really good place to start if you're in high school. Is just start at home. Like figure out what get your iNaturalist app and identify the spider that's in the corner of your shower. Figure out what its life cycle is, what it eats, all those kinds of things. Just really start at home and trying to figure out what things are that you're seeing and maybe why they're here. So you might, a lot of the insects that I suspect you discover in your yard, even the ladybugs and even the worms and even the snails are probably all from Europe. And so you could find out what these things were and probably the spiders too. Like most of the spiders that bite us in our house are from Europe. They're not native spiders. So you can start to find out what invasive species are here and then why, what plants they came on, why they like your yard so much. And you can start to put together an ecological story right from home and then telling people about it. Now you might, they might think you're insane or weird. I've dealt with this my whole life. You know, they end up forgiving you about it maybe get interested in themselves, but you want to just start saying, Hey, check out the spider. The spider is actually native to France. What's it doing in California? And Start having fun with it and there you become the interpreter.
1: So uh, another word for interpreter sounds like it is a nature nerd.
3: Super nature nerd, yeah, a nature nerd <laughs> community.
1: <laughs> well, I think our, I think we would all like to be more nature nerdy. And uh, I think our audience is the perfect group to, uh, to take that on.
3: Have them check out NAI, National Association for Interpretation if you just wanna get a quick class. Like or that. California right. Naturalist Program. There's California Naturalist Programs all over the place. And they're usually like two weeks long, and they're also really, really valuable. I just did one last year. I learned so much. Even after all my experience, I still learned uh, cool stuff. But it's for beginners, so that's be another avenue. California Naturalist Program. Very cool. Cool. All
0: right. Well, Griff. Again, thank thanks so much for for you know taking the time to talk to us about about all these amazing things. I mean, honestly, it's you do so much amazing work on so many different fronts in, in, in this space. You know, in the outdoor space and the conservation space and and everything. So so a huge thank you. Um how can people find you? How can they find your show? What's the best way for people to learn more about you, what you do, and and what you've done?
3: Well for wild jobs, they can go to AnimalPlanet.com or they can go to Facebook. Um and just once you bring up Animal Planet on Facebook, you just scroll down and see Wild Jobs. And if you like the episodes, put a comment on there like when's the next 10 episodes coming out? (laughs) Because I would love to do that again. Um, I do live presentations right now until the pandemic ends. Um, I do them on um, Humboldt Redwood State Parks page every Fridays and Sundays at 3.30. And then after we reopen the park, which might happen sooner than we originally said, um, I'll still be doing like lives on there. And I don't know if regularly or just when I find something really cool, I might do a live. But the main place to find me would probably be on Facebook at Griff Wild, at Griff Wild, John Griff Griffith on Facebook, or my YouTube. When you just put in John Griffith and you'll see me dancing, and Instagram oh, yeah. at, at The Nature Nut.
0: Uh, we'll obviously have a link to the, the Dance Like a Boss and the Bio Blitz in our show notes so, so people can also see you there.
1: Thanks again, Griff. Stay safe. Yeah, I think this is going to be one episode where the show notes are going to be invaluable entertainment. So everybody's going to want to check out the show notes for the links. Well, that's going to do it for us.
0: Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at Almost There underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventurous Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at the SoCal Hiker or me at The Muir Project. Our title track Almost There is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. If ever there was an episode to check out our show notes, it would be this one. You can find them at almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On our next episode, we talked to filmmaker Chris Smead about his new film, The Highline Trail. As always, thanks for listening.